the growing importance of upset recovery training. From the National Business Aviation Association, this is Flight Plan. I'm Pete Combs with your trusted source for business aviation news. Loss of control in flight remains one of the top focus areas of the NBAA Safety Committee. But the good news is that there is positive movement on this issue within the industry. So let's catch up on that with Paul B.J. Ransbury, president of Aviation Performance Solutions. He's at his headquarters in Mesa, Arizona. Jeff Wofford, Chief Pilot and Aviation Director at Comscope in Hickory, North Carolina. And from the Mojave Air and Spaceport in California, Scott Glazer, Senior Vice President of Operations at Flight Research Incorporated. Let's start with B.J. Ransbury and Mesa. B.J., I've reported on NBAA's top safety focus areas for a number of years now, and loss of control in flight seems to be on that list almost every year. Well, loss of control in flight continues to demonstrate itself to barely be a resilient threat. It's still the number one cause of fatalities across aviation. It's really uh, aircraft agnostic. It's something that nobody's immune to. It doesn't matter whether a pilot is flying a single-engine piston airplane, multi-engine airplane, high-performance transport category, airplane with fly-by-wire technology. It's persistent and breaks through the barriers and mitigations of traditional uh, certification and licensing training. Hey, Jeff, let me ask you, when we talk about accidents and pilot training, what's going on here? Why are we seeing issues with pilot training that are leading to accidents like this? Well, one of the things that's happened is that in the last decade and a half, we've shifted focus away from basic flying skills to concentrating on the new uh, avionics that are in the airplane. And so we've expended a great deal of energy into teaching people how to use EFAS systems and advanced flight management systems and all that. And in the process, we have uh, downplayed the need for basic flying skills, and it's, it's starting to show up now. And so I think that's a big part of the problem. And Scott, when you talk about that, I mean, there's an argument that says, well, sometimes we're becoming more uh, computer programmers than we are uh, pilots. But, you know, the truth is the airplane is being flown more and more by the automation, and we're not having a chance to use our basic aviation skills. Yeah, I agree with that wholeheartedly. The newer avionics systems, the newer automation systems are really eye-watering and very impressive. Uh, however, they're built uh, by humans just like the rest of us, and they fail just like everything, every other device that, uh, that we have. And when that happens, um, we have to rely on basic flying skills. And as was stated earlier, those skills aren't being taught as robustly as they have been in the past. So whenever all this great new technology downgrades or fails or whatever, and these pilots who haven't been trained, and it's very, it, we got to make very clear, it's not the pilot's fault. They haven't been trained. They, they don't know these things. They don't know how to handle the airplane. And so we need to, as an industry, step up and make those skills robust again and how to, and just the, the basic maneuvering and the basic airmanship of how to fly an airplane whenever your computer, you know, when your HAL 2000 fails on you. So, um, so that's really the, the heart of the problem. And, you know, BJ, if we're talking about uh, an issue with basic skills, what's going on with our ability to deal specifically with upset situations? Well, really, the airplane upset follows a usually a complicated path through a number of areas where it's not 
a simple matter, for example, of eliminating distraction or improving pilot monitoring, even though those areas would help. Uh, what the problem is, is that it, it's such a complex approach to the airplane upset is that despite it's arguably every aspect of flight training and certification is designed for the pilot to stay within the area of the envelope that they're familiar with and get trained in, the airplane upset usually is a combination of a number of items together where the airplane gets to a, a condition, a flight condition, in a rapid or an insidious manner to the point where now the pilot gets overwhelmed with the human factor, startle, surprise. Uh, their capacity to analyze the situation starts dropping. Their familiarity with the flight condition they're facing is now to the point where it starts compounding those other factors to make the situation worse. So it's really kind of like a, a snowball effect where the deeper it gets into the airplane upset, the worse it is. So the the goal of, of licensing training and historic approach to airplane upsets is really trying to focus on awareness and prevention. The, the rationale being if we never get to the airplane upset, we never need to worry about recovery. The problem is, is that, you know, statistics demonstrate that despite our very best efforts in those areas, that pilots do end up in situations they're unfamiliar with and flight conditions they're not used to and simply don't know how to deal with it. And very often their intuitive responses make the situation worse, which further escalates the, the incapacitation, startle, surprise. And it's just unfortunately a self-defeating uh, situation. And, and when you start adding on what we talked about earlier with the complexity of systems and those complex airplanes where the pilots flying them probably have a lower level of manual handling, flight envelope awareness. It is kind of a, it's a conundrum where we want to go to automation for safety, but the very act of doing that causes vulnerabilities in other areas. Jeff, when you talk about the fact that the automation is a contributing factor here, is one reason that perhaps when we start seeing an upset situation unfold, maybe the first reaction is to go to the automation rather than to take control of the aircraft? Yeah, so what happens is, uh, as, as Scott and BJ alluded, uh, you know, part of what happens is a startle effect. So when something happens, uh, they may not know how to interpret what's happened. So the first thing they do is they're going to the automation to look at it. And if they're presented with something that they're not at all familiar with, like if they're upside down, uh, they really don't have the toolkit that enables them to fix that uh, if they've never seen it before. Uh, and so that's, that's a lot of the problem we have is that uh, we're presented with a situation where we've become so dependent on the, on the technology that when something happens outside the norm, uh, they have a hard time, you know, adapting to it. And as BJ alluded, you've got the uh, the startle effect. Uh, and so that's that's a big issue. BJ, recently we had an upset prevention and recovery training global summit. What came of that? What can we apply here? Well, I think it was a very exciting event in the fact that uh, one of the major air carriers that's leading the industry in, and really airline upset training, United Airlines, took the initiative with the FAA's permission to hold a global summit on overcoming uh, loss of control in flight. And uh, I think by a lot of effort by that airline and other uh, member airlines that were in attendance, uh, such as Alaska Airlines, Delta Airlines, Lufthansa, Southwest, South African Airways, uh, that was really well received. There was well over 100 people in attendance and they were the right people there wanting to look for improved solutions and how their airline can address loss of control in flight. So uh, prior to the call, I actually reached out to the event organizer and asked them, what are the advancements that the, that the summit provided to the industry? 
and I think uh, his response was that it was really now become a unified global cross-fleet approach to dealing with loss of control in flight and to really drive towards setting an industry standard where everybody is helping each other. And in fact, the theme of the event was Learn, Connect, and Inspire, which is exactly how it was run. So it was the very first one. It was well-attended, fantastic presentations and guidance made available to the to the airline industry and those training managers. And correctly, uh, one of the areas that airlines, because they're limited to simulation, have to deal with is a very strong focus on the critical aspects of overcoming the human factors such as startle and surprise and and how that's a, an equal or even a, a, a bigger threat in an airplane upset than the manual handling aspects associated with it. So it was a really interesting event to watch and how advanced the industry has become. And I think we really all need to thank United Airlines for leading that. And my understanding is it's now going to be an annual event with Alaska Airlines taking it on in 2020. Well, that makes great sense. And that's certainly a good indication of just how the industry is approaching this as a serious issue that not only are we seeing a focus on this by NBAA, but also by commercial carriers, as you mentioned. Scott, what do you think? That is a, a reasonable approach to this and maybe one that is not only long overdue, but most welcome. I, I agree wholeheartedly. The fact that the major carriers are taking this this issue seriously and moving in a positive direction is it makes me feel better. It makes me sleep better at night. We've seen the same things uh, with some of the customers that we've had come through. Um, we work with some other majors, uh, Qantas Airlines, for instance, and folks like that. So it, it really is taking hold, um, and hopefully the, the momentum continues. It's great to hear uh, that the, the summit is going to be an annual event. I think that's important that we don't lose lose sight of the issue because it's it, – as many things in aviation, it's easy to become uh, complacent and uh, you know, normalization of deviance. So I think it's a great thing that, that the awareness is growing, the actions, the mitigations uh, are growing, and I think it's very encouraging. And hopefully we'll see that ultimately uh, uh, manifest itself in a reduction in, in accidents and better safety. You know, Jeff, talking about upset and talking about ways to avoid upset, talking about the startle, I mean, talking about this problem is one thing. Maybe the best thing that you can do is get in the cockpit and experience that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think it's essential. Uh, to give you a couple of examples, uh, you go back about 15 years ago, I was in training and we were doing uh, our unusual attitude recoveries in a simulator. And I was with uh, another pilot from, from a different company. And so one of the recoveries was from a uh, white turbulence incident. And so we were rolled inverted. And so my recovery was pretty straightforward. I rolled it on through, did a go around, came back in and landed. Uh, when the other guy tried doing it, when he got rolled upside down, his initial action was to pull, which resulted in the simulator red screening. You know, in the simulator, that's not a big deal. You just hit the reset button and start over. In real life, it's a different thing. So you fast forward about uh, 10 years and I had one of my junior pilots had just finished uh, upset and recovery training. And we were in a Learjet climbing out of uh, about 34,000 feet and had an honest-to-goodness upset. We were rolled in, inverted, and my junior pilot was flying. I was in the right seat, and he executed a perfect textbook recovery. And uh, I can imagine that somebody that had never been presented with that kind of uh, scenario would have handled it much differently. And so I, I think there's 
real world experiences that really point to having to do on wing and at least simulator based training so that people see this when it's presented to them. Cause like we said earlier, if you, if you have this presented to you and you have no idea what you're looking at, that's not the time to try experimenting on a recovery. And so it's essential that we start talking about this. We talk about it in ground school. We talk about it in simulator training and at a minimum, you know, you get in a simulator and go through recovery scenarios and, and learn, how to, how to deal with the situation. What you talked about is remarkable in the difference between someone who goes through upset recovery training in a real life situation, as well as in the simulator, DJ, you train people over the desert on this every single day. And I know from what you and I've talked about in the past, the difference between their first experience with upset in this training course and their ability after a couple of three flights is remarkably improved. Yeah, that, that's a very fair statement. And, you know, similar to flight research also providing this training, there's a number of organizations to do it. And it, it's very interesting that most pilots, most flight departments, given the opportunity to even go to free airplane upset training, would actually feel like they don't need it. it it's really incredible to see that transformational experience they have where they, they really go from a situation of being unconsciously incompetent, not knowing what they don't know in a matter of a couple of days, becoming consciously competent and recognizing that this type of training is not only critical to dealing with an airplane upset, it improves airmanship, aeronautical decision-making, manual handling. There's just a big impact on their overall ability to, to fly airplanes and to be successful as a, as a professional air, uh, aviator. And so it's it's exciting to see that, but unfortunately, it's one of those scenarios, unlike having a coffee shop where everybody wants coffee, you set up a you know upset prevention recovery training organization, which provides life-saving transformational training. Most of the people that need it the most are convinced that they don't. Scott, let me ask you about requirements here. I mean, should this be part of uh, an aviation organization's SMS? Should it be part of their routine and, and mandatory training requirements to, to undergo upset training, live or simulated or both? Absolutely. In a minor improvement, uh, the FAA changed the, the FARs in recent years to add a small amount of upset recovery training in, in simulators as a basic requirement. That's a move in the right direction. It's nowhere near adequate. Uh, it should be added, and it has been added, in the SMS of particular flight departments and it really depends on the attitude of not only the flight department, the people running the flight department, but also the companies. We have a lot of customers where the pilots and the flight departments want to come do this training because they understand the benefit of it. Uh, however, they can't get the budgetary or the schedule approval to do so. And I, I think, you know, as, as BJ was saying and Jeff was saying, there's, there's a, a significant amount of justification as to why you need to go do this in an airplane and why it should be mandated. In a parallel life, I'm also an aerospace physiology researcher. I have a PhD in biomedical engineering from Drexel University. One of my colleagues and the members of my committee recently published a paper. What they did basically is they used a, a brand new technique for non-invasive measurement of brain activity and compared how pilots learn and fly in simulators versus airplanes. And your brain operates totally differently whenever you're in a simulator versus when you're in the same type of airplane, same scenario and so forth. Your brain knows that you are not 
in the sky if you're in a simulator. And the way you process things, the way you deal with stress, all of those things change. So that by itself tells you from a data standpoint that this training in the airplane is required. One of my favorite stories, I was flying with a, with a student. We were flying in our saber liner and uh, we were doing a, a, a recovery, a nose high recovery. And this student had had simulator training. And when he, when he took the airplane, he pushed the nose forward like he did in the simulator and had us hanging the straps, put us on the roof, all this sort of thing. And uh, we immediately recovered. Didn't hurt the airplane. Saber liners, uh, as Bob Hoover said, the greatest business jet ever built. But the student's reaction was, well, the simulator didn't do that. So that's the really important part, again, of making sure that this training is not only done, but done with an in-aircraft element. You know, one of the things that I think is worth talking about is if you're in the uh, simulator, you may not experience, to your point, Scott, and, and Jeff, you may agree, agree with this as well, but you may not experience that startle. And the startle is you can't underestimate the effect of startle in trying to initiate a recovery. Oh, it, yeah, I agree completely. And the other issue is is that until they can build one, simulators can't, do, can't simulate G-forces. And, uh, you know, a lot of what we do comes from seat of the pants. And, uh, uh, you know, when you're in the middle of a recovery and you're pulling Gs, it makes a big difference. And so uh, while simulator training is, I mean, if that's all you can do, that helps. But on wing is, is extremely important because it helps you develop these skills and understand what's happening. And, and you're dealing with a whole lot of other things going on uh, in real time. And again, as, uh, as Scott mentioned, no matter how good a job we do simulating, it's in the back of your mind, you know, you're in a simulator. And all you got to do is turn it off and walk out and go get a cup of coffee. It's not the same thing when you're in an airplane and you see the desert coming up at you as you're spiraling down and, and, and some kind of upset. Uh, so it makes, a, it, it makes a big difference, makes a, makes a bigger impact. Where is ICAO on this? So I think the exciting part about ICAO is that it was uh, put together by a group of industry experts, 80 individuals, 40 organizations over a five-year period starting back in 2009. And they really did a fantastic job of looking at the threat, looking at the complexity of the aviation training marketplace and operational marketplace, and put together a very comprehensive solution. Now, not to negate anything that's been said so far about the value of on-aircraft training, the one thing that is very clear is that there's no single solution to dealing with loss of control in flight. So the on-aircraft training element is certainly the biggest contributor towards mitigating the threat, primarily because of its ability to deal with startle surprise, the human factors of how the brain functions, as Scott alluded earlier, very differently in the real world. But there's also a, a tremendous value in the proper integration of simulation and also the proper integration of academic knowledge. And it's interesting how the sum of them together are far greater than they are individually alone. So ICAO really focused in on that to specify what the requirements were if you're going to implement training, the best solution is an integrated combined approach of academics on aircraft and simulation and kind of different levels of each of those. The exciting part of it is that we're actually starting to see that happen. And I'd like to, you know, take my hat off to the FAA because even though we're talking about ICAO, it was really the FAA that led uh, to the production of the ICAO manual on upset prevention and recovery training. It all started back with Colgan that led to public law 111-216, which required stall and upset training. 
which now create an act of Congress for the FAA to develop this training, which has led to the regulatory requirements that United Airlines, Delta Airlines, and other U.S. air carriers are reacting to, which was really the genesis of the UPRT Global Summit that happened in uh, Denver, Colorado uh, this year to really come forth and attack that with Verve. And what we're seeing now is in Europe, for example, on aircraft training is being required at licensing training. It's also being required of instructors. So even though the FAA led the development of the UPRT manual and had the first regulations in place, in particular to 121 air carriers or the airlines, is we're now seeing uh, EASA taking off. And it's really a worldwide impact. We're, you know, we, we see a couple airlines a week looking for solutions for UPRT. And I, I, it's really not about any one person or any one organization. It's, it's really about the entire industry aligning behind something that matters so much, which is loss of control in flight, which accounts for nearly half of all fatal accidents in the world to come together and really push what the industry needs to be able to mitigate this the best they can with the available resources. So with airlines, it may only be academics and simulation, but for the national aviation authorities around the world where they can require on aircraft upset training for all the benefits we've talked about on this call, I think we're going to see an acceleration in the right direction where right now we see baby steps. I think in the next five to 10 years, we are going to see a unified effort uh, to overcome loss of control in flight and at the end of the day, saving lives and saving people uh, from being faced with this risk on their everyday travel. Scott and Jeff, any thoughts on the international aspect of this, ICAO or otherwise? That's Jeff. You know, I think, uh, you know, I agree with, with uh, BJ on this and that uh, it's amazing of how much has been, uh, you know, gained so far. And again, starting with the, uh, the, the manual that came out, you know, in 2009. And I, I also agree that, you know, we've got to have a, a combined front with this where we're looking at academics and looking at uh, simulator and on wing and internationally, this has gained a lot of ground over the last several years. And I think that's truly going to be the thing that really turns us around is that it's, it's got enough attention now that it's in, it's in people's faces and I think we're going to see not only the regulators, but training providers, uh, you know, making sure that the syllabi are being adjusted to be able to include this and in, in not only initial, but in recurrent courses and to make sure that this, this is identified as a major area of concern and applying the appropriate focus. I think that the ICAO manual is bordering on miraculous. Uh, and I think it shows that the people that are really that really understand the problem and are dedicated to improving safety throughout the world have are are there and they are taking the steps necessary and and have all gotten together and as BJ said you know it culminated in the summit that the problem is out there we're trying to tackle it together the solution is something that is known and the the whole world not just the FAA is is taking some at least at least some recognition of it and moving in good directions. I, I think uh, EASA's requirements are also moving in the right direction. Uh, I think there's some reticence to requiring it uh, in aircraft, uh, which is unfortunate, and there's there's reasons for that. Things are moving in the right direction, and it, it may actually be the international community that, even though the FAA was the was the catalyst, that might be the tide that kind of raises all the ships and brings it more to the forefront and, uh, and we get more training done. What about the issue of cost, especially if we're talking about on-wing training? The cost of, of the training um, 
while not insignificant in comparison to acquisition costs and so on and so forth, is really quite small. And when you look at the safety benefits of it and the professionalism benefits and so forth, um, it, it's, you know, it's, it's to say it's high value is to understate it. Many of the insurance providers uh, will provide a discount to flight departments and individuals for taking uh, this kind of training, provided that the, the program is, is certificated by that or approved by that insurance company. Uh, we have an agreement with the Citation Jet Pilots Association. Um, they come here and we actually do a small amount of training in their own airplanes. Uh, and obviously, we don't take them to any any conditions outside of the normal flight envelope uh, or I'm sorry, the, uh, the flight manual envelope. But it's certainly uh, more uh, the flight conditions we take the customer airplanes to are larger than what the owners are used to taking them to you know, what is the cost of safety and things along those lines. And some of the mitigations that the flight departments pay for in the form of, um, you know, automation and safety programs and things, other solutions, the cost is really uh, is really quite minimal in comparison. Uh, BJ, I don't know if you have uh, similar thoughts or... I totally agree with everything that Scott said is that it's, you know, the cost compared to what is what it comes down to when you, unfortunately, in loss of control, that's usually catastrophic and fatal. So it's really just a balance of of what the investments are. Now, on a a piece of data, for example, that I wasn't going to bring up, but since you're talking about cost, what indications from the industry are is that, for example, uh, like Scott, APS does uh, jet training. We do high altitude training. We also do piston training. We do airline type specific training. But the interesting part is, is that the jet part of our program, where we use all attitude capable jet training platforms, both in low and high altitude, first quarter of this year, we had more jet training than we had the entire previous year. So there's a very strong interest increasing in on-aircraft training and in particular on-aircraft jet training, which I think is a good signal to the industry. And the exciting part about that for everybody on this call, and I think the industry, is that word of mouth will get around of the incredible value of that. And to Scott's point, you know, it's the cost is really not much compared to the to the safety value of, of what they are getting out of it. And to his point as well, insurance organizations such as USAIG and Swiss Re, other owner pilot associations. I know we work with the Mirage Malibu Association. The military is taking this on as a as a priority. So it's really a it's really exciting to to see the direction it's going. But when you talk about the cost, it really comes down to understanding the value. So in our organization, if somebody is balking at the cost, which is actually quite rare, it's usually they don't understand the depth and the breadth of the value that this type of solution brings because it's just not about upset recovery techniques. Well, I appreciate exactly what you said. And I'll give Jeff the final word here. Jeff, when it comes to trying to convince somebody about the worth versus the cost, what are you going to tell them? Well, first off, you know, as a department manager, uh, I'm, I'm constantly having to look at budget. And, you know, training becomes a very significant significant expense. But my approach has always been uh, understanding that the fact that the people that are in the C-suite don't get there because of a lack of intelligence. Uh, and so it's all how you approach it. Uh, in our situation, when we first started doing upset recovery training, I'm very fortunate in that they let me make all these decisions and they, they backed me up on that. And, of course, when we had our actual upset, we had the chairman of the company on the airplane. Of course, he backs us 100% now. That's Jeff Wofford, chief pilot and aviation director at Comscope. 
We also heard from Paul B.J. Ransbury, he's president of Aviation Performance Solutions, and Scott Glazer, Senior Vice President of Operations at Flight Research Incorporated. I have one more place for you to go to get more information on this topic. It's nbaa.org slash loci, L-O-C-I. That's where you'll find a wealth of information on loss of control in flight. And that's the latest from the National Business Aviation Association. Remember, you can subscribe to all Flight Plan podcasts at Apple's iTunes website, wherever you find your favorite podcasts, or you can download them from nbaa.org. I'm Pete Combs. Thanks for listening to Flight Plan. <laughs>